Uh, Ephesians chapter 6 tonight, as we continue our study in the book of Ephesians. Just feel impressed with the Lord tonight to begin with this, and I think you'll see how it ties in a little bit later tonight, because you may have walked in here tonight feeling pretty small. Let me remind all of us tonight, there are no little people and no little places in God's eyes. There are only consecrated and unconsecrated people. And for the consecrated people, everywhere they are is a consecrated place. So I think it's pretty cool tonight because I sense that this place tonight is a consecrated place. Because there are consecrated people here to God tonight. And you have come to worship the Lord and to hear from God and to encourage one another tonight. No little people, no little places. Even Moses struggled with that. And when God was talking to Moses, he says, Moses, what's that in your hand? And Moses said, it's just a staff. And God showed Moses that wasn't just a staff. That was going to become the rod of God. Because anything that we have, that we give to God, and that we consecrate to God becomes unbelievable in God's hands. No little people, no little places. Ephesians chapter 6. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment accompanied by a promise, namely, that it may go well with you and that you will live a long life on the earth. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but raise them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Slaves, obey your human masters with fear and trembling in the sincerity of your heart as to Christ, not like those who do their work only when someone is watching as people pleasers, but as slaves of Christ doing the will of God from the heart. Obey with enthusiasm as though serving the Lord and not people, because you know that each person Whether slave or free, if he does something good, this will be rewarded by the Lord. Masters, treat your slaves the same way, giving up the use of threats, because you know that both you and they have the same master in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him. First of all, as we approach this passage tonight, just as we've approached the passages in in, uh, in Ephesians chapter 5, we have to look at the context. And the context flows from one verse in Ephesians chapter 5 that is really the key to all the interpersonal relationships that he talks about in chapter 5 and chapter 6. Whether it's husband-wife, whether it's parent-child, whether it's, as we see here, what they call servant-master, slave-master, or I'm going to apply it tonight to the where we are tonight, employee-employer relationship. And here's what God says is the key to all of it. Be filled with the Spirit of God. Look at chapter 5, verse 18. Do not get drunk with wine, which is debauchery, but be filled by the Spirit. Don't be filled with the Spirit. It's not like we get filled up with the Spirit of God. We get all of the Spirit of God when we become a Christian. But it is the influence of the Spirit. It is the direction of the Spirit. It is the control of the Spirit. And God is simply saying throughout this passage of Scripture in the book of Ephesians that 
I need the filling of the Spirit continually in my life in order to be a godly wife, a godly husband. I need the Spirit's filling in my life in order to be a, a child that brings honor to God, a parent that brings honor to God, and how we build relationships with each other that brings honor to God. And then in that whole one who has authority over me and, and one who is under authority, we all need the Spirit of God thriving within our lives in order to make that work to bring honor and glory to God. So again, before we sort of dive into the specific passage tonight, it's always important to examine the context of a biblical passage. And just like the last couple of weeks, it's so important that we start off by mentioning the filling of the Spirit of God. Because, as I said a couple of weeks ago when we taught on that, that commandment, if not obeyed, then no other commandment can be obeyed. And so all that we're going to talk about in Ephesians chapter 6 tonight, there's no way that could ever be accomplished apart from the filling of the Spirit of God. But it all can be accomplished if I allow the Spirit of God to control me, to influence me, to use me in that way. Under the Spirit's influence, a Christian home can have a tremendous impact upon society. And that's another reason why God and the Apostle Paul spent so much time talking to the Ephesian Christians about home life about how husbands and wives and parents and children and all of that should relate to each other. Because a home that is dedicated to the Lord, a home where each person in that home is allowing the Spirit of God to fill them, can be a tremendous, tremendous influence upon society. And we need Christian homes. We need those who make up homes, even... I don't care what the home is, a single person, that's a home. To be spirit-filled is to show the reality of our faith in Christ to the world. And the best thing, again, in the context here, that parents can do for their children is to provide that stable marriage and that stable home environment. That's why I think he even relates these instructions to the husband and wife that we examined so closely last week first before he even gets to the parent-child relationship. Because children need to see that marriage lived out before them and they need to see their mom and dad loving each other and they need to see that stability in that relationship. That will go a long way towards making a great and positive impact upon children. And before children can capture obedience on their own, they must have a consistent model of obedience set before them. I mean, in Ephesians chapter 1, when Paul says, children, obey your parents, obviously when we begin to think about that, he, he has to be talking to children who are old enough to understand what he's saying. And we all know that Many years before that, children have to be taught to obey. And even more than they have to be taught to obey and the importance of obedience, obedience has to be modeled by all those in the family. That that's going to make as much of an impact on the children growing up there so that when they get to the age where 
this whole thing about being challenged to obedience begins to click in their mind, they've already had years of seeing that modeled before them by maybe their brothers and sisters, their mom and dad, whoever in the household. And that's why it's important that those, in a sense, in places of authority and responsibility, obviously have to take these measures on ourselves first. I cannot expect my children to be obedient to the Lord if they see in my life a continual disobedience to the commands of the Lord. So when Paul tells children to obey parents, we also need to go back just a little bit further and remind ourselves that before we even get to that point, before children are old enough to be able to read and be challenged with the commands of Scripture themselves, parents need to be living that out before the Lord. Can I also just share, and I'm going to be sharing from my heart tonight as I try to each week, but just even by some of the experiences that that I've encountered over the years. Um, When my son and daughter accepted Christ as their Savior, I felt it very important over the years after that to leverage that in their life when maybe disobedience uh, was coming into play there, just as I feel I need to challenge myself with that as well. In other words, is that really Christ-like behavior? Is that the way a Christian would behave? Is that the way a follower of Christ would think and act and all of that? And I need to challenge myself with that, and I would also challenge my children with that. I don't think it's wrong for us as Christians To, in a sense, challenge ourselves and challenge each other with, look, if we're going to call ourselves a Christian, then let's raise the bar as far as our behavior and how we're coming across. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. And again, God just says, this is the right way to do it. I'm not going to give you a million reasons why it's right. I'm just going to tell you from my perspective it's right. Because remember, God is a God of order. God God is a God who has set up in order for the home and and society and everything to function in an orderly way. And in order for a home to function orderly, there's got to be those in authority and there's got to be those who are willing to submit to that authority and be taught how important it is. And yet again, even as children who may feel like I'm sort of on the the bottom of the, the rung here in the family type of thing, you know, that there are no little people and no little places in God's economy. And that those children are just as important to the health of the family, to the testimony of the family, to the impact of the family, as the oldest member of the family is. And that they should, they should be taught the dignity and the honor and the responsibility that's really cool that God lays upon them and to use it as a challenge in their lives rather than as something that is negative. Also, respect for God and others begins at home. Notice he says in verse 2, Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment accompanied by a promise. Honor, respect. And, And children must, according to the Bible, be taught to respect God, His Word, other people, their possessions, and it must begin at home. 
It must begin at home. And, and again, though, that goes back to the respect that even the husband and the wife and all the adults and guardians in that home and how they treat each other and how they respect each other. Again, because it's modeling as much as anything. It is setting an example as much as anything. As I've heard for years, there are many people who say, I'd rather see a sermon than hear a sermon any day. And, and really, that's where the reality of our faith comes out. And so, it's very important that we all learn to respect each other. And even that parents certainly respect their children and treat them res- with respect if they're going to ask those children to treat them with respect. There has to be that mutual respect. And again, that teaching of respect in regards to others and their property and to God. And that all has to start at home. It really does. It's not primarily the church's responsibility. It is primarily those within the home. And in some ways, we are very tragically missing that within many homes today. Also, we learn that many promises in the Bible are conditional. And a lot of people latch on to promises like this one given here in chapter 6, verses 2 and 3. Hey, I got a promise. God promised that it's going to go well with me and I'm going to live a long life. Yeah, but there's a condition to that. And a lot of times people read the Bible and they get all excited about the promises. And hey, I get excited about the promises too, but I also have to remember that the majority of the promises that God gives us in the Bible are conditional promises. They're, if you do this, then I will do this. And so before we get excited about the promise, we've got to look at what is the condition for that promise. And the condition for that temporal prosperity and spiritual prosperity is that again, we're respecting God, we're respecting His Word, we're respecting others, we're respecting other people's property. Because you see... It's not so much I believe that God somehow is just going to supernaturally cause somebody to live longer. I think what he's saying here is it sort of takes care of itself within society. If I show restraint and sobriety and industry as I relate with other people, I'm probably going to live a life. If I show respect to others and to what they have and stuff, I'm probably going to save myself from a lot of trouble. And I'm going to probably save myself from a lot of conflict and a lot of fights and a lot of wars. So if if I can learn to respect others as I grow, then throughout my life I show people respect. I probably won't have all the problems that might come into my life otherwise. And so therefore the principles that I learn, even in my home life, can benefit me to live a long life. Parents, verse 4. Be careful not to exasperate your children. And again, notice the balance here. Just like back in chapter 5. Wives have responsibilities. Husbands have responsibilities. In God's eyes, children have responsibilities. Parents have responsibilities. And we have to balance those out in order to have a home that brings honor and glory to God. And the thing that God says here is, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. How do I do that? Well, unjust demands 
unreasonable severity and unremitting criticism can produce bitterness and anger. Don't think I ever am going to be good enough to where I'm ever going to get their approval. Nothing is ever good enough. Overprotection of children can provoke children to anger. Where we never allow them any space or any kind of independence, especially as they grow up. Again, one of the things I tried to do with my children that I believe God did with me and does with me is if my children proved that they could handle one level of responsibility, I would let the rope out to see if they could handle the next level of responsibility. And if they could handle that, I would continue to give them more and more responsibility. That's an encouragement. But, but parents that never allow their children to branch out and, and seek out that new responsibility, those children can get to a point where they will resent their parents and where they will become bitter against their parents and angry against their parents because they never allowed their children to bloom and blossom, if you will. They put them in a little cocoon, a little box, and tried to control their whole life. God says, be careful, parents. Be careful about what's going on inside of your children as you raise them. And again, that you raise them in the wisdom of God and in the love of God as well. Showing favoritism. If you have more than one child and if parents show favoritism towards a child, one, obviously that's going to cause those other children to become very bitter and you're going to provoke those children to anger. We see a biblical example of that with Joseph and his brothers in the book of Genesis. So many different ways that we can provoke our children to anger, to bitterness, and we just need to ask for God's direction and wisdom as we raise our children. In fact, notice, raise them up. Raise them up. And I just want to stop there because I know there's more to say than that, but I love that picture. Parents, raise up your children. Don't don't put them down. Raise them up. And raise them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Balance. Paul's not saying be permissive and allow them to do everything that they want to do because we even know that will provoke them to anger. Because children who are left to themselves feel very insecure. When there's no boundaries, no parameters, when they're able to do whatever they want to do and their parents don't seem to care, that also leaves them very bitter. So it's not about being permissive. It's about loving discipline and it's about instruction. There could be no better preparation for life for our children than to provide them with a thorough awareness of and respect for God and the principles of His Word. And we go back to this principle. Faith is caught more than taught. It really is. And we could apply that principle to our friends, to our co-workers, to people we go to school with, to our neighborhood. They're going to look at the way we live our lives and they're going to take more of a cue from that than they are anything that we say. Because again, most people are more anxious to see a sermon than hear a sermon. And the same thing is true with children. In fact, keep your finger there in the book of Ephesians and go back to the Old Testament book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the fifth book of the Old Testament. 
And here's what this passage is teaching. Deuteronomy chapter 6. It's teaching that my faith needs to be a way of life if it's going to be effective. I cannot just be a Sunday Christian. I have to allow the reality of my faith to be fleshed out in my life every day. Going back to what Jim Caviezel said when he was here a couple of weeks ago, I can't have a foot in both worlds. It's got to be real. And it's got to penetrate all areas of my life. I've got to be transparent. I can't be one thing in public and another thing at home. I can't be one thing at work and another thing at school. I I have to be consistent to a point. I realize we all fail, but there's got to be an overall arching consistency in my life and that my faith is a way of life. It's not something I put on when I come to church on Sunday and then take off when I leave. And that's exactly what Moses challenged the children of Israel, especially the parents with, in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 7. Listen to what he says. Listen, Israel. The Lord is our God and the Lord is one. You must love the Lord your God with your whole mind, your whole being, and all your strength. These words I am commanding you today must be kept in mind and you must teach them to your children and don't miss this and speak of them as you sit in your house and as you walk along the road and as you lie down and as you get up. In fact, he goes on to say you should tie them as a reminder on your forearm and fasten them as symbols on your forehead and scribe them on the door frames of your houses and gates. In other words, wherever you go and whatever you do, Your relationship with God should shine through to those within the home. And it's not like a switch that we just flip on and flip off. It's something that we wear every day, every hour of the day. And notice, I love this in verse 5. How can I pass on to others... What I myself do not possess. And how can I expect my children or anyone else to love the Lord or get excited about spiritual things if it first has not hit home with me? And that's why in Deuteronomy chapter 6, before he even gets to what parents should be doing as far as teaching their children in verse 7, he says in verse 5, you parents must love the Lord with all your heart. It's got to start with us. That's why the, the, the most effective witnesses for Christ are those who have first committed themselves to loving the Lord and putting Him first in their life. And then guess what? That relationship's just going to start flowing. And everywhere you go, whether you go to Target or Walmart or whether you go to work or whether you go to school or whether you go in your neighborhood or wherever, Christ is going to be shining out through your life. And people are going to be able to see Christ and the reality of your faith simply because of your own, again, consecration and commitment to the Lord. There are no little people. There are no little places. There are only the consecrated and the unconsecrated. And God calls us to be consecrated, committed, devoted to Him. So that it doesn't end with us. 
But so that God can then use that passion for Him to reach into the hearts of others and show them, here's what a person who loves God looks like. Here's what a person who puts God first in their life, that's what they talk like. That's how they relate to others. That's, that's what their home is like. That's how they treat their husband or their wife. That's how they raise their children. That's how their children treat their parents. And they have these living examples before them. You see, a lot of people today say, well, if God just came down and just, if he just dwelled among us, even just for a week, man, people would just, and here's what God's response is. I give you living examples. I'm asking my people to be those living examples of what a follower of Christ and what Christ is all about. That's our responsibility now. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. And then he turns to those who followed him and said, now you are the light of the world. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works in heaven and glorify God. It's our responsibility. And it's got to begin with us. Again, we can't pass on to others what we ourselves first do not possess. Uh, That's why I just... I hope that my love of the Bible comes across on Tuesday. Because I just want to pass on to you all the passion and the love that I have for this book. And I, I hope you catch it. It's not something I necessarily can teach because from head to head it isn't going to happen. But maybe from heart to heart it will. You see. And that's true for all of us. That's true for all of us. Parents, going back to the book of Ephesians now. It's not about the rules. It's about a relationship with our kids. There are many parents that I've talked to over the years who struggle in their relationship with their children and wonder what's broken and why it's not working. And a lot of them even say, Jeff, we're, we're bringing up our children on biblical principles, man. We, we've got all the right rules, man. And one of the first things I'll ask is, but what about a relationship? Because, see, the relationship is more important than the rules. We can have all the right rules. Just like in Christianity, it's not about rules. It's about a relationship with Jesus Christ. And there are a lot of people out there searching. And one of the reasons why they get so frustrated and discouraged, and maybe you're even provoked to anger or bitterness, is because they hurt all their life. I've got to live up to this set of rules in order to be accepted by God. Oh, my goodness. I can't live up to that. And so it just becomes this exasperating, frustrating thing in their life. Guess what? The same thing is true with our children within the home. Here's my expectations. Here's my set of rules. And if you don't measure up, and this is the way the home's going to be run, and there's no relationship there. It's just, here's the Ten Commandments of our home. Follow them and everything will be okay. No. It's got to be a relationship. I'm not saying no rules. Ask my kids. They're rules. But the relationship has to take precedence over the rules, the boundaries, the precepts, the principles. In fact, they will carry more weight, really, if there is a relationship there. There were times when I was a teenager, and please, I was not the perfect teenager. I could tell you stories. <laughs> But there were times where the reason 
I didn't do what I was tempted to do because I knew that if I did it, I would break my mom and dad's heart. And there was a relationship there. I loved them. And because I loved them and because there was a relationship there, that's what kept me from crossing that line. That's true for the Christian. That's why God says, don't make my relationship with you about adhering to a set of rules. But if there's a relationship with me there, then you're going to get to the point where you don't want to grieve the Holy Spirit of God. And you're not going to want to cross that line because you're not going to want to break God's heart who loves you so much. Relationship. That's what it's all about. In fact, speaking of relationships, look at verse 5. When we come to verse 5, this troubles a lot of people. And it should. Because he starts talking about slavery. And there's nowhere in the Bible where it says, first of all, there shouldn't be any slavery. A couple things. It's clear that God does not condone slavery in any way, shape, or form. But God understands that living on this earth and living in a world where people don't always treat each other the way that they should... And that there are people of power who misuse their authority and power. That there's always going to be those who serve in positions underneath others. And you can take that all the way to the slave. But in Ephesians it was more than, it wasn't slave as we think of slavery. It was more a household servant. And we even have household servants today. In our society and around the world. We have people who we pay to serve us and meet our needs and whatnot. And so we could really then begin to apply a lot of the principles that he begins sharing in verse 5 to employee-employer relationships. And he's going to talk to both sides of it again. Not just one, but there's responsibility on both. And we can also take principles out of this passage on even our service and ministry for the Lord. Notice, he begins then by basically saying that the main thrust of biblical teaching is that everyone should live righteously in whatever circumstances they are in. Slaves, obey your human masters with fear and trembling and the sincerity of your heart is to Christ. Now, if, if there was a chance that a, a slave or a servant could gain their freedom, Paul would say, go for it. But Paul and God obviously recognizes that there are times where I find myself in circumstances that I can't control and that at that time I can't get out of yet. And so God is saying, when you find yourself in these circumstances, and sometimes they can be pretty hard circumstances, here's my will. My will is to do it right, no matter what you find yourself doing and no matter what circumstance you're in. Do it right. Do it to honor and glorify me. Again, going back to the book of Genesis. After Joseph was thrown into the pit and sold into slavery into Egypt. Terrible circumstances. It wasn't his fault. He didn't do anything to deserve where he was. But God basically told Joseph, do it right. 
Do it right. Yeah, you're suffering at the hands of those who are jealous of you, but navigate this moment right. Show people that even in the negative circumstances of life, I can give you power and strength to rise above your circumstances. God wants us to be a thermostat, not a thermometer. A thermometer is affected by everything outside of it. And if it's cold, thermometer goes down. Hot, thermometer goes up. That's why many Christians live what we call a roller coaster Christian life. Because when circumstances are good, man, they're good. They're up. When circumstances are bad, they're down. God says, I want you to grow and I want you to mature to where you go from being a thermometer to a thermostat and where you are fixed regardless of what is going on around you. And where you can bring glory and honor to me no matter what circumstance you find yourself in. Paul said, godliness with contentment is great gain. And so then, he did it right, and he gets promoted to being part of Potiphar's household in Egypt. And he's doing it right. In fact, the Bible says the hand of the Lord was on him, and he was, this isn't where he wanted to be. This isn't where he saw himself for the rest of his life. But he was going to be the best household servant for Potiphar that he could be. And where did it get him? Potiphar's wife propositioned him. He turned her down and by her jealousy, she had him thrown into prison. Is this what I get for serving the Lord? But all along, Joseph was learning a valuable lesson. That there are times in our life where we find ourselves in circumstances where we don't want to be there. And all God is asking us is, I know you don't want to be there. I get it. And you're not going to be there forever in that circumstance. But for now, while you're there, do it right. And that's why he tells slaves to be obedient. To be the best slave, the best servant that that household ever saw. Because in doing so, they would bring honor and glory to God. You see, Paul reminds the servants, as he reminds us as servants of Christ, that all we do, we do for Jesus. We don't do it for people anyway. Notice verse 5. Obey your human masters in the sincerity of your heart as to Christ. It's not ultimately for them. Because if it's for people, I'm not going to be doing what I do very long. Even in serving and ministering, even in the church, if I'm serving and ministering for Christ, primarily to get the approval, appreciation, applause of people, I'll probably serve for a couple months and then quit. Because people aren't always going to give me the pats on the back that I need to keep going. And people aren't always going to give me the credit that I deserve. And people aren't always going to, to remember everything that I've done for them. And they're, they're not going to always, again, show the support that they should. And that's why Jesus says, so don't do it for people. Do it for me. And everything that you find your hands doing, just look at it as, you're not serving them. You're serving me. You're serving the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's true, again, not just in an employee-employee relationship. That's true even within the church. That everything that we do in and out of this church as Christians, we ultimately should never be doing it for the motivation that we're doing this for people. We ultimately are doing it for the motivation that we're doing it for the Lord. He's our motivation. Then notice... Verse 6, can we be trusted when no one is looking? 
Paul says, not like those who do their work only when someone is watching as people pleasers, but as slaves of Christ doing the will of God from the heart. We all know them. Probably work with some of them, right? The boss is there, whatever. Man, they're busy. You know, the boss takes a day off or goes somewhere else. do 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 You know. And, and again, no honor, no consistency, no transparency. Oh, they're looking? Okay, I'll act busy. Oh, they're not looking? Okay. Take some time off. And God reminds all of us, again, no matter what position we're in and where we're at, we can fool people. People can fool us, but we can't fool God. God sees everything we do. He's omniscient. And though we might think we're pulling a fast one over on our boss or our director or whatever, we don't pull anything over God. And God says, look, the principle is that if you're faithful in what I've given you here, I'll give you more responsibility. So if I want more responsibility from God, if I want to make a greater impact in the world for Christ, if I want God to give me more, then I've got to be faithful with exactly what He's given me right here and now. And I've got to be the kind of person that can be trusted even when no one is looking. It has been said that the measure of a person's character is what they are in the dark. When no one else is around... No one else is looking. No one else can see where they at. God says, that's what I want you to strive to be. That kind of servant. Someone that becomes absolutely trustworthy. Why? Because the will of God for my life, and we all talk about, what's the will of God for my life? Here's the will of God. The will of God for my life is to do the very best with whatever I'm doing in my life at that moment. That's the will of God. That's what he says in verse 6. As slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. See, the will of God for my life right now is to teach the Bible like I never taught it before. (laughs) To study this week, to prepare for next week like I've never studied before. To do the very best that whatever God has given me, right then, right there. Not to look too far down the road. But to say, God, here's what you've put on my plate today, and I'm going to bring honor and glory by doing my very, very best. That's why I love verse 7. Obey with enthusiasm as though serving the Lord and not people. Guys, we're not serving people. If that were the case, yeah, a lot of times we dog it. Because again, they don't, they don't show me any appreciation. They don't, they don't give me the kudos that I really deserve. But I'm serving the Lord, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the creator of the universe. That's who I'm serving. That's why I love what uh, the writer of Ecclesiastes says. I'm going to try to find it here because it's a great reminder to me every day. And I'm going to try to find it really quickly. Here we go. Ecclesiastes. Whatever you find to do with your hands, do it with all your might. Because there is neither work, nor planning, nor knowledge, nor wisdom when you get to the grave. The place where you will eventually go. In other words, guys, gals, we got one life. One life. Let's give, it our, let's give every day everything we've got. And whatever God has given us that day, let's do it the very best that we can. And that's what he's telling the servants here. 
I know you don't want to be a servant. You're not going to be a servant the rest of your life, at least in that household. But don't forget, servants, you're always going to be my servants because we're all servants of the Lord. Our service is honorable, too. No matter what we do, for our service is for the Lord himself. He reminds us of that in verse 7. See, that, that what, that's what makes everything that we do honorable. That, that's, it doesn't matter what we do. If we're doing it for the Lord and for his glory, it's honorable. That's why Jesus could say, if you give somebody who's thirsty a cup of cold water, that's honorable. Because you're doing it for me. And you're doing it as a, as a representative for me. So again, that's where, you know, even in the church, we say, you know, everything is important. But we still, we rate it, man. Uh, these are the important positions and these are the important people. And, and I just do this and so I'm not as important. And remember what we said at the beginning? No little people, no little places. You see, everything according to God's word that I do is significant. There is nothing that you and I as Christians ever do that is insignificant. We may think it's insignificant, but it never is. One word the Bible says that is correctly spoken can be huge. That's why the book of Proverbs says a word fitly spoken is like apples of gold and settings of silver. Man, the right word at the right time can change somebody's life. Nothing insignificant. Going up to somebody and encouraging them could change their entire life. Our family knows a Christian author. If I told you her name, probably some of you even have her books in your home. She's written like 80 to 90 books. They're all in the Christian bookstores and Barnes and Noble and you can get them everywhere. For years, she never picked up a pen as a Christian author. One friend came alongside of her one day and said, I think you need to write. And everybody she said else in my life was discouraging me and saying, no, nah, I don't think that's for you. And, and she said, but it kept coming back that this one friend and their encouragement kept ringing in my ears. And it was like God used their words to just keep pounding in my head. And finally one day, because of the encouragement of one person in my life, I picked up the pen and started to write. That was like 80 books ago. No little people, no little places. You see, the cool thing is that that gal that nobody knows her name, according to God, she's going to reap a lot of the rewards of the ministry of her friend who became the author. Because God understands she would have never been where she was without her. And the same thing is true for all of us. I wouldn't be where I am without the encouragement and help and support of many, many people down through my life. And the same thing is true for you. And then we flip that around for others as well. All the people that you encourage and support, everything that they do to impact this world for Christ, guess what? God says you've had a hand in that. You're going to get rewarded for that one day. No little people, no little places. Everything we do is honorable because it's done for the Lord Jesus Christ. And let's remember something. God doesn't have to use us, but he wants to include us. And to be used by God is a moment-by-moment -moment privilege. It isn't something that 
as a right, like, God, you're obligated to use me. No, there's nowhere in the Bible where it says God is obligated to use us. But he wants to. And all we have to do is make ourselves available. As I've shared with people again for years, it's not our ability, it's our availability. It's just making yourself available to God. Story after story after story throughout the Bible illustrates that. We talk about the feeding of the 5,000, one of the greatest miracles Jesus ever did. It's the only miracle that's recorded in every one of the four Gospels. But how did that miracle take place? Because that little boy, whose mom packed him that little lunch, said, Jesus, this doesn't look like this would feed this many, but here you go. No little people. No little places. Everything we do is significant before God. And in verse 9, we are reminded that all of us are accountable to God for our treatment of other people. That's why he turns to masters and says, treat your slaves the same way, giving up that use of threats. Because you know, both of you, that they have the same master in heaven and there's no favoritism with them. You might be the big grand poobah down here on earth. But when you get to heaven, that position of grand poobah isn't going to mean a thing to God. So God even says to those in authority over others, be careful how you treat them. Be careful. Yes, I want my servants under authority to be honorable and to do it right. And to be the best servant that they can possibly be. To serve me. But you masters, you employers, you who have people underneath of you, make sure that you treat them with respect and treat them the way you would want to be treated if the positions were reversed and that you treat them the way I want you to treat them because you're going to be accountable to me one day for the way you have treated other people. I wanted to end though with this. I want to leave you with a very, very encouraging couple of verses tonight. Look up at verse 8, a verse that I skipped over on purpose. Because you know, and I hope you know, I, I hope you really know by faith that this is true. That each person, that includes you and me, whether slave or free, doesn't matter what our position in life is, If he does something good, this will be rewarded by the Lord. Wow. You see, one of the bummers on earth is I can do a lot of good and never, like, there get any recognition for it. It can just pass by. It's like, man, did nobody see what I did over here? And, And yet the Bible says that's the cool thing with God. You see, God keeps a perfect accounting of everything. And nothing gets by God. Nothing. Everything the Bible says that we ever do good after we become a Christian. Because remember now, let's, let's not go down this road. Doing good doesn't make me a Christian. I accept Jesus Christ by faith. And it is by His grace through faith that I come into a right relationship with God. But after I become a Christian, God wants me to live. A life that can glorify Him and honor Him. And one of the ways I do that is by doing good. 
In fact, Paul said to the Ephesians in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, we were created in Christ Jesus for good works. And God then wants to remind us that everything good that we've ever done throughout our lives will be rewarded one day. Everything. Do you realize what that means? That means even things that you and I forgot about, God won't forget about. Because let's face it, we don't remember all the good we've done. And yet one day when we get to heaven, I think that's one of the things that's going to blow us away. Is we're going to get there and God's going to start saying, hey, and I, I want to commend you for that. I'm going to reward you for that. We're going to, when did I do that? Oh, we're here back in 1967. You Really, God? Wow. I, I didn't think that was a big deal. In my eyes, God will say, remember, no little people, no little places. Everything is significant. Think about that. That's why if you turn to the book of 1 Corinthians, I just want to take you quickly to a couple of passages tonight in closing in our last five minutes together. And I think these will be very encouraging to you. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Begin reading with me in verse 50 of 1 Corinthians 15. He's talking here about the promise and hope of a glorified body and an eternity in heaven, and here's what he says. This is what I'm saying, brothers and sisters. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Listen, I will tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a moment, in the blinking of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed, for this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on our immortality. Now when this perishable puts on the imperishable, and this mortal puts on the immortality, then the saying that is written will happen, death has been swallowed up in victory, where, O oh, death, is your victory, where, O oh, death, is your sting, the sting of death is sin, the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So here we go. The doctrine of our glorified bodies, the doctrine of the resurrection, but he doesn't stop there. He says, yeah, this is what's going to happen in the future, but now let's take what's going to happen in the future and let's apply it to the present day. Verse 58. So then, dear brothers and sisters, be firm, do not be moved, always be outstanding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Can I just say, whatever you and I do for the Lord is never in vain. Do you realize every Tuesday you guys make an effort to come to the Mind Bible Study will not be in vain. Even if Jeff did a lousy job that night, it will not be in vain because God will override this frail human vessel and God will bring glory to himself somehow. It will not be in vain. Go over to the book of Hebrews. To Hebrews chapter 6. And I mark this verse in my Bible too because this verse is so encouraging. Hebrews chapter 6 verse 10. And here the writer of Hebrews is simply saying, and here's why I'm going to base this on. It's the, the character of God is at, at stake. If God would somehow forget anything that we do, he would, he would cease to be God. He wouldn't be just. So notice in verse 10 of Hebrews 6, he says, For God is not unjust, so as to forget your work and the love you have demonstrated for his name and having served and continuing to serve the saints. You see, the writer of Hebrews says, God will never forget. You and I can forget. 
Other people will forget, but God will never forget what you do for Him and what you do for others in the name of Him. God will not forget. It will be worth it, my friends, when we get to heaven and we see Jesus. Which brings me to the very last book of the Bible. Go all the way over to the book of Revelation, to the very last chapter of the Bible. And isn't it very interesting Some of the last words of the Bible, the last words of Jesus to His people in the Bible, deal with the reward that He has for His people who live a life of consecration, faithfulness, and commitment. Because, hey, I don't care how committed we are, there are times in our Christian life where we just look up and go, God, is this really worth it? Listen, some of the most faithful Men and women who ever lived for Christ asked that question. John the Baptist asked that question. God, I'm about ready to get my head chopped off. Is it going to be worth it? And Jesus said, yes, John, it's going to be worth it. Peter said to Jesus, is it going to be worth it when I get crucified upside down? Jesus said, yeah, Peter, it's going to be worth it. John, when he was exiled on the Isle of Patmos, when he wrote the book of Revelation, probably looked up one day and said... God, is being on this island, is it, is it going to be worth it one day? Jesus says, yeah, it's going to be worth it. And it's not only going to be worth it for you, John, it's going to be worth it to everyone who knows me. Notice what Jesus says. Revelation 22, verse 12. Look, I am coming soon, and my reward is with me to pay each one according to what he has done So notice verse 20, the one who testifies to these things says, yes, I am coming soon. And I love the response of John. Amen. Come Lord Jesus. Can I just say, come Lord Jesus. Come Lord Jesus. Let's pray. God, tonight, I I just pray as we leave this place tonight that, Lord, you have used me in some way to encourage these folks to just keep on keeping on with Christ. They may find themselves right now in in a place in life that they don't want to be. They may wonder if the way they're living and What they're doing for you is really ever going to matter and make a difference. But God, remind them tonight that in your eyes, everything is significant. Everyone is significant. There are no little people in God's eyes and there are no little places. And one day, God, you will reward us and commend us. And applaud us for everything good we've ever done in your name and for your name. And God, we get it. It's not that we deserve the credit for it. Because we understand that if we did anything good, it was only because we allowed you to help us and enable us to do what we did. So Lord, we will take those rewards. And we will honor you with them throughout eternity. Because even those rewards that we get 
are a testimony to your grace, to your power, and to your strength. Lord, this world is in a terrible place. And this world needs Jesus. And I pray that even right here with this group of people that in your eyes are not a little group of people at all, that Lord, you would take us and help us to change the world around us for the honor and glory of Jesus. And we say in closing tonight, and we repeat the words of John, our dear brother in the faith, come Lord Jesus, come. We pray in his name. Amen. Folks, I love you. Have a great week.